Chapter twenty two of The Masquerader by Catherine Cecil Thurston. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter twenty two. After his interview with Eve, Loder retired to the study and spent the remaining hours of the day and the whole span of the evening in work. At one o'clock, still feeling fresh in mind and body, he dismissed Greening and passed into Chilcot's bedroom. The interview with Eve, though widely different from the one he had anticipated, had left him stimulated and alert. In the hours that followed it there had been an added anxiety to put his mind into harness, an added gratification in finding it answer to the rain. A pleasant sense of retrospection settled upon him as he slowly undressed, and a pleasant sense of interest touched him as, crossing to the dressing-table, he caught sight of Jilcott's engagement-book taken with other things from the suit he had changed at dinner-time and carefully laid aside by Renwick. He picked it up and slowly turned the pages. It always held the suggestion of a lottery, this dipping into another man's engagements and drawing a prize or a blank. It was a sensation that even custom had not dulled. At first he turned the pages slowly, then by degrees his fingers quickened. Beyond the fact that this present evening was free, he knew nothing of his promised movements. The abruptness of Chilcot's arrival at Clifford's Inn in the afternoon had left no time for superfluous questions. He skimmed the writing with a touch of interested haste. Then all at once he paused and smiled. "'Big enough for a tombstone,' he said below his breath, as his eyes rested on a large blue cross. Then he smiled again and held the book to the light. "'Dine, 33 Cadogan Gardens, 8 o'clock, talk with L.' he read, still speaking softly to himself. He stood for a moment, pondering on the entry, then once more his glance reverted to the cross. Evidently meant it to be seen, he mused. But why the deuce isn't he more explicit? As he spoke, a look of comprehension suddenly crossed his face, and the puzzled frown between his eyebrows cleared away. With a feeling of satisfaction, he remembered Lakeley's frequent and pressing suggestion that he should dine with him at Cadogan Gardens and discuss the political outlook. Lately must have written during his absence, and Chilcot, having marked the engagement, felt no further responsibility. The invitation could scarcely have been verbal, as Chilcot, he knew, had lain very low in the five days of his return home. So he argued, as he stood with the book still open in his hands, the blue cross staring imperatively from the white paper and from the argument rose thoughts and suggestions that seethed in his mind, long after the lights had been switched off, long after the fire had died down, and he had been left wrapped in darkness in the great canopied bed. And so it came about that he took his second false step. Once, during the press of the next morning's work, it crossed his mind to verify his convictions by a glance at the directory. But for once the strong wish that evolves a thought conquered his caution. His work was absorbing, the need of verification seemed very small. He let the suggestion pass. At seven o'clock he dressed carefully. His mind was full of lately and of the possibilities the night might hold. For more than once before the weight of the St. George's Gazette, with lately at its back, had turned the political scales. To be marked by him as a coming man was at any time a favourable portent. To be singled out by him at the present juncture was momentous. A thrill of expectancy, almost of excitement, passed through him as he surveyed his appearance preparatory to leaving the house. 
Passing downstairs, he moved at once to the hall door, but almost as his hand touched it, he halted, attracted by a movement on the landing above him. Turning, he saw Eve. She was standing quite still, looking down upon him as she had looked once before. As their eyes met, she changed her position hastily. "'You are going out?' she asked, and it struck Loda quickly that there was a suggestion, a shadow of disappointment in the tone of her voice. Moved by the impression, he responded with unusual promptness. "'Yes,' he said, "'I'm dining out, dining with Lately.' She watched him intently while he spoke. Then as the meaning of his words reached her, her whole face brightened. "'With Mr. Lately,' she said, "'oh, I'm glad, very glad, it is quite, quite another step.' She smiled with a warm, impassive touch of sympathy. Loder, looking up at her, felt his senses stir. At sound of her words, his secret craving for success quickened to stronger life. The man whose sole incentive lies within may go forward coldly and successfully, but the man who grasps a double inspiration, who even unconsciously is impelled by another force, has a stronger impetus for attack, a surer, more vital hewing power. Still watching her, he answered instinctively, "'Yes,' he said slowly, "'a long step.' and with a smile of farewell he turned, opened the door, and passed into the road. The thrill of that one moment was still warm as he reached Cadogan Gardens and mounted the steps of number 33, so vitally warm that he paused for an instant before pressing the electric bell. Then at last, dominated by anticipation, he turned and raised his hand. The action was abrupt, and it was only as his fingers pressed the bell that a sudden unexpectedness a certain want of suitability in the aspect of the house struck him. The door was white, the handle and knocker were of massive silver. The first seemed a disappointing index of Lately's private taste, the second a ridiculous temptation to needy humanity. He looked again at the number of the house, but it stared back at him convincingly. Then the door opened. So keen was his sense of unfitness, that, still trying to fuse his impression of Lately with the idea of silver door fittings, he stepped into the hall without the usual preliminary question. Suddenly realising the necessity, he turned to the servant, but the man forestalled him. "'Will you come to the white room, sir? And may I take your coat?' The smooth certainty of the man's manner surprised him. It held another savour of disappointment, seeming as little in keeping with the keen, business-like Lately as did the house. Still struggling with his impression, he allowed himself to be relieved of his hat and coat, and in silence ushered up the shallow staircase. As the last step was reached, it came to him again to mention his host's name. But simultaneously with the suggestion, the servant stepped forward with a quick, silent movement, and threw open a door. "'Mr. Chilcott,' he announced, in a subdued, discreet voice. Loda's first impression was of a room that seemed unusually luxurious, soft, and shadowed. Then all impression of inanimate things left him suddenly. For the fraction of a second he stood in the doorway, while the room seemed emptied of everything, except a figure that rose slowly from a couch before the fire at sound of Chilcot's name. Then with a calmness that to himself seemed incredible, he moved forward into the room. He might, of course, have beaten a retreat and obviated many things, but life is full of might-have-beens, and retreat never presents itself agreeably to a strong man. His impulse was to face the difficulty, and he acted on the impulse. 
Lillian had risen slowly, and as he neared her she held out her hand. "'Jack!' she exclaimed softly. "'How sweet of you to remember!' The voice and words came to him with great distinctness, and as they came one uncertainty passed forever from his mind, the question as to what relation she and Chilcot held to each other. With the realisation came the thought of Eve, and the midst of his own difficulty his face hardened. Lillian ignored the coldness. Taking his hand, she smiled. "'You are unusually punctual,' she said. "'But your hands are cold. Come closer to the fire.' Lodas was not sensible that his hands were cold, but he suffered himself to be drawn forward. One end of the couch was in firelight, the other in shadow. By a fortunate arrangement of chance, Lillian selected the brighter end for herself, and offered the other to her guest. With a quick sense of respite, he accepted it. At least he could sit secure from detection while he temporised with fate. For a moment they sat silent, then Lillian stirred. "'Won't you smoke?' she asked. Everything in the room seemed soft and enervating. Subdued glow of the fire, the smell of roses that hung about the air, and last of all Lillian's slow, soothing voice. With a sense of oppression he stiffened his shoulders and sat straighter in his place. "'No,' he said. "'I don't think I shall smoke.' She moved nearer to him. "'Dear Jack,' she said pleadingly, "'don't say you're in a bad mood. Don't say you want to postpone again.' She looked up at him and laughed a little in mock consternation. Loder was at a loss. Another silence followed while Lillian waited. Then she frowned suddenly and rose from the couch. Like many indolent people, she possessed a touch of obstinacy, and now that her triumph over Chilcote was obtained, now that she had vindicated her right to command him, her original purpose came uppermost again. Cold or interested, indifferent or attentive, she intended to make use of him. She moved to the fire and stood looking down into it. "'Jack,' she began gently, "'a really amazing thing has happened to me. I do so want you to throw some light.' Loda said nothing. There was a fresh pause while she softly smoothed the silk embroidery that edged her gown. Then once more she looked up at him. "'Did I ever tell you,' she began, "'that I was once in a railway accident on a funny little Italian railway, centuries before I met you?' She laughed softly, and with a pretty air of confidence turned from the fire and resumed her seat. "'Astrop had caught a fever in Florence,' and I was rushed away for fear of the infection, when our stupid little train ran off the rails near Pistoria and smashed itself up. Fortunately we were within half a mile of a village, so we weren't quite bereft. The village was impossibly like a toy village, and the accommodation which one would expect in a Noah's Ark, but it was all absolutely picturesque. I put up at the little inn with my maid and Coco. Coco was such a sweet dog, a white poodle. I was tremendously keen on poodles that year. She stopped and looked thoughtfully towards the fire. But to come to the point of the story, Jack, the toy village had a boy doll. She laughed again. He was an Englishman and the first person to come to my rescue on the night of the smash-up. He was staying at the Noah's Ark Inn. And after that first night, I, he, we, oh, Jack, haven't you any imagination?' 
her voice sounded petulant and sharp. The man who is indifferent to the recital of an old love affair implies the worst kind of listener. "'I believe you aren't interested,' she added, in another a more reproachful tone. He leaned forward. "'You're wrong there,' he said slowly. "'I'm deeply interested.' She glanced at him again. His tone reassured her, but his words left her uncertain. Chilcote was really emphatic. With a touch of hesitation she went on with her tale. "'As I told you, he was the first to find us—to find me, I should say, for my stupid maid was having hysterics farther up the line, and Coco was lost. I remember the first thing I did was to send him in search of Coco.' Notwithstanding his position, Loder found occasion to smile. "'Did he succeed?' he said dryly. "'Succeed? Oh, yes, he succeeded.' She also smiled involuntarily. Poor Coco was stowed away under the luggage van, and after quite a lot of trouble he pulled him out. When it was all done, the dog was quite unhurt and livelier than ever, but the Englishman had his finger almost bitten through. Coco was a dear, but his teeth and his temper were both very sharp. She laughed once more in soft amusement. Loder was silent for a second, then he too laughed. Chilcot's short, sarcastic laugh. "'And you tied up the wound, I suppose?' She glanced up, half-displeased. "'We were both staying at the little inn,' she said, as though no further explanation could be needed. Then again her manner changed. She moved imperceptibly nearer, and touched his right hand. His left, which was farther away from her, was well in the shadow of the cushions. "'Jack,' she said caressingly, "'It isn't to tell you this stupid old story that I brought you here. "'It's really to tell you a sort of sequel.' "'She stroked his hand gently once or twice. "'As I say, I met this man, and we—we we had an affair. "'You understand? "'Then we quarrelled, quarrelled quite badly, and I came away. "'I've remembered him rather longer than I remember most people. "'He was one of those dogged individuals who stick in one's mind.' "'but he stayed in mine for another reason.' "'Again she looked up. "'He has stayed because you helped to keep him there. "'You know how I have sometimes put my hands over your mouth "'and told you that your eyes reminded me of someone else? "'Well, that someone else was my Englishman. "'But you mustn't be jealous. "'He was a horrid, obstinate person, and you— "'Well, you know what I think of you.' "'She pressed his hand.' "'But to come to the end of the story, "'I never saw this man since that long-ago time "'until until the night of Blanche's party.' "'She spoke slowly, to give full effect to her words. "'Then she waited for his surprise. "'But the result was not what she expected. "'He said nothing, and with an abrupt movement "'he drew his hand from between hers. "'Aren't you surprised?' she asked at last, "'with a delicate note of reproof. He started slightly, as if recalled to the necessity of the moment. "'Surprised?' he said. "'Why should I be surprised? One person more or less at a big party isn't astonishing. Besides, you expect a man to turn up sooner or later in his own country. Why should I be surprised?' She lay back luxuriously. "'Because, my dear boy,' she said softly, "'it's a mystery. It's one of those fascinating mysteries that come once in a lifetime.' Loder made no movement. 
"'You must explain,' he said very quietly. Lillian smiled. "'That's just what I wanted to do. "'When I was in my tent on the night of Blanche's party, "'a man came to be gazed for. "'He came just like anybody else, "'and laid his hand upon the table. "'He had strong, thin hands, like, well, rather like yours. "'But he wore two rings on the third finger of his left hand, "'a heavy signet ring and a plain gold one.' Noda moved his hand imperceptibly till the cushion covered it. Lillian's words caused him no surprise, scarcely even any trepidation. He felt now that he had expected them, even waited for them all along. "'I asked him to take off his rings,' she went on, "'and just for a second he hesitated. I could feel him hesitate. Then he seemed to make up his mind, for he drew them off. He drew them off, Jack, and guess what I saw?' Do guess. For the first time, Loder involuntarily drew back into his corner of the couch. I never guess, he said brusquely. Then I'll tell you. His hands were the hands of my Englishman. The rings covered the scar made by Coco's teeth. I knew it instantly, the second my eyes rested on it. It was the same scar that I had bound up dozens of times, that I had seen healed before I left Santa Solari. And you? What did you do? Noda felt it singularly difficult and unpleasant to speak. "'Ah, that's the point. That's where I was stupid and made my mistake. I should have spoken to him on the moment, but I didn't. You know how one sometimes hesitates. Afterwards it was too late.' "'But you saw him afterwards, in the rooms?' Noda spoke unwillingly. "'No, I didn't. That's the other point. I didn't see him in the rooms, and I haven't seen him since.' Directly he was gone, I left the tent. I pretended to be hungry and bored. Though, though I went through every room, he was nowhere to be found. Once—she hesitated and laughed again—once I thought I had found him, but it was only you. You, as you stood in that doorway with your mouth and chin hidden by Leonard Kane's head. Wasn't it a quaint mistake? There was an uncertain pause. Then Loder, feeling the need of speech, broke the silence suddenly. "'Where do I come in?' he asked abruptly. "'What am I wanted for?' "'To help to throw light on the mystery. I seen Blanche's list of people, and there wasn't a man I couldn't place. No outsider ever squeezes through Blanche's door. I've questioned Bobby Blessington, but he can't remember who came to the tent last, and Bobby was supposed to have kept count.' She spoke in deep scorn but almost immediately the scorn faded, and she smiled again. "'Now that I've explained, Jack,' she added, "'what do you suggest?' Then for the first time Lola knew what his presence in the room really meant, and at best the knowledge was disconcerting. It is not every day that a man is called upon to unearth himself. "'Suggest?' he repeated blankly. "'Yes. I'd rather have your idea of the affair than anybody else's.' are so dear and sarcastic and keen that you can't help getting straight at the middle of a fact. When Lillian wanted anything she could be very sweet. She suddenly dropped her half-petulant tone. She suddenly ceased to be a spoiled child. With a perfectly graceful movement she drew quite close to Loda and slid gently to her knees. This is an attitude that few women can safely assume. It requires all the attributes of youth, suppleness, and a certain buoyant ease. 
but Lillian never acted without justification, and as she leaned towards Loda, her face lifted, her slight figure and pale hair softened by the firelight, she made a picture that it would have been difficult to criticise. But the person who should have appreciated it stared steadily beyond it to the fire. His mind was absorbed by one question, the question of how he might reasonably leave the house before discovery became assured. Lillian, attentively watchful of him, saw the uneasy look, and her own face fell. But, as she looked, an inspiration came to her, a remembrance of many interviews with Chilcott, smoothed and facilitated by the timely use of tobacco. "'Jack,' she said softly, "'before you say another word, I insist on your lighting a cigarette.' She leaned forward, resting against his knee. At her words, Loda's eyes left the fire. His attention was suddenly needed for a new and more imminent difficulty. "'Thanks,' he said quickly. "'I have no wish to smoke.' "'It isn't a matter of what you wish, but of what I say.' She smiled. She knew that Chilcot with a cigarette between his lips was infinitely more tractable than Chilcot sitting idle, and she had no intention of ignoring the knowledge. But Loder caught at her words. "'Before you ordered me to smoke,' he said, "'you told me to give you some advice. Your first command must have prowed lame.' He grasped unhesitatingly at the less risky theme. She looked up at him. "'You're always nicer when you smoke.' she persisted caressingly. Light a cigarette, and give me one. Loda's mouth became set. No, he said, we'll stick to this advice business. It interests me. Yes, afterwards. No, now. You want to find out why this Englishman from Italy was at your sister's party, and why he disappeared? There are times when a malignant obstinacy seems to affect certain people. The only answer Lillian made was to pass her hand over Loder's waistcoat, and, feeling his cigarette-case, to draw it from the pocket. He affected not to see it. "'Do you think he recognised you in that tent?' he insisted desperately. She held out the case. "'Here are your cigarettes. You know we're always more social when we smoke.' In the short interval while she looked up into his face, several ideas passed through Loder's mind. He thought of standing up suddenly and so regaining his advantage. He wondered quickly whether one hand could possibly suffice for the taking out and lighting of two cigarettes. Then all need for speculation was pushed suddenly aside. Lillian, looking into his face, saw his fresh look of disturbance, and from long experience again changed her tactics. Laying the cigarette case on the couch, she put one hand on his shoulder, the other on his left arm. Hundreds of times this caressing touch had quieted Chilthilt. "'Dear old boy,' she said soothingly, her hand moving slowly down his arm. In a flash of understanding the consequences of this position came to him. Action was imperative at whatever risk. With an abrupt gesture he rose. The movement was awkward. He got to his feet precipitately. Lillian drew back, surprised and startled, catching voluntary at his left hand to steady her position. Her fingers grasped, then held his. He made no effort to release them. With a dogged acknowledgment, he admitted himself worsted. How long she stayed immovable, holding his hand, neither of them knew. The process of a woman's instinct is so subtle, so obscure, 
that it would be futile to apply to it the commonplace test of time. She kept her hold tenaciously, as though his fingers possessed some peculiar virtue. Then at last she spoke. "'Rings, Jack?' she said, very slowly. And under the two short words a whole world of incredulity and surmise made itself felt. Loda laughed. At the sound she dropped his hand and rose from her knees. What her suspicions, what her instincts were, she could not have clearly defined, but her action was unhesitating. Without a moment's uncertainty she turned to the fireplace, pressed the electric button, and flooded the room with light. There is no force so demoralising as unexpected light. Loder took a step backward, his hand hanging unguarded by his side, and Lillian, stepping forward, caught it again before he could protest. Lifting it quickly, she looked scrutinizingly at the two rings. All women jump to conclusions, and it is extraordinary how seldom they jump short. Seeing only what Lillian saw, knowing only what she knew, no man would have staked a definite opinion. But the other sex takes a different view. As she stood gazing at the rings, her thoughts and her conclusions sped through her mind like arrows, all aimed and all tending towards one point. She remembered the day when she and Chilcot had talked of doubles, her scepticism and his vehement defence of the idea, his sudden interest in the book Other Men's Shoes, and his anathema against life and its irksome round of duties. She remembered her own first convinced recognition of the eye that had looked at her in the doorway of her sister's house. And last of all, she remembered Chilcot's unaccountable avoidance of the same subject of likenesses when she had mentioned it yesterday, driving through the park, and with it his unnecessarily curt repudiation of his former opinions. She reviewed each item, then she raised her head slowly and looked at Loder. He was prepared for the glance, and met it steadily. In the long moment that her eyes searched his face, it was she, and not he, who changed colour. She was the first to speak. "'You were the man whose hands I saw in the tent?' she said. She made the statement in her usual soft tones, but a slight tremor of excitement underrand her voice. Poodles, Persian kittens, even crystal gazing balls, seemed very far away in face of this tangible, fabulous, present interest. "'You are not Jack Chilcot,' she said very slowly. "'You are wearing his clothes and speaking in his voice. But you are not Jack Chilcot.' Her tone quickened with a touch of excitement. "'You needn't keep silent and look at me,' she said. "'I know quite well what I am saying.' though I don't understand it, though I have no real proof. She paused, momentarily disconcerted by her companion's silent and steady gaze, and in the pause a curious and unexpected thing occurred. Loda laughed suddenly, a full, confident, reassured laugh. All the web that the past half-hour had spun about him, all the intolerable sense of an impending crash, lifted suddenly. He saw his way clearly and it was Lillian who had opened his eyes. Still looking at her, he smiled, a smile of reliant determination, such as Chilcot had never worn in his life. And with a calm gesture he released his hand. "'The greatest charm of woman is her imagination,' he said quietly. 
Without it, there would be no colour in life. We would come into it and drop out of it with the same uninteresting tone of drab reality. He paused and smiled again. At his smile, Lillian involuntarily drew back, the colour deepening in her cheeks. "'Why do you say that?' she asked. He lifted his head. With each moment he felt more certain of himself. "'Because that is my attitude,' he said. "'As a man I admire your imagination, but as a man I fail to follow your reasoning.' The words and the tone both stung her. "'Do you realise the position?' she asked sharply. "'Do you realise that, whatever your plans are, I can spoil them?' Nola still met her eyes. "'I realise nothing of the sort,' he said. "'Then you admit that you are not Jack Chilcote?' "'I neither deny nor admit. My identity is obvious. I can get twenty men to swear to it at any moment that you like. The fact that I haven't worn rings till now will scarcely interest them.' "'But you do admit, to me, that you are not Jack?' "'I deny nothing and admit nothing. I still offer my congratulations.' "'Upon what?' the same possession, your imagination. Lillian stamped her foot. Then by quick effort she conquered her temper. "'Prove me to be wrong,' she said, with a fresh touch of excitement. "'Take off your rings and let me see your hand.' With a deliberate gesture, Loder put his hand behind his back. "'I never gratified childish curiosity,' he said, with another smile. Again a flash of temper crossed her eyes. "'Are you sure?' she said. "'that it's quite wise to talk like that?' "'Loda laughed again. "'Is that a threat?' "'Perhaps.' "'Then it's an empty one.' "'Why?' "'Before replying, he waited a moment, looking down at her. "'I conclude,' he began quietly, "'that your idea is to spread this wild, improbable story, "'to ask people to believe that John Chilcott whom they see before them, is not John Chilcott, but somebody else. Now you'll find that a harder task than you imagine. This is a sceptical world, and people are absurdly fond of their own eyesight. We are all journalists nowadays. We all want facts. The first thing you will be asked for is your proof. And what does your proof consist of? The circumstance that John Chilcott, who has always despised jewellery, has lately taken to wearing rings. Your own statement, unattended by any witnesses, that with those rings off, Tvinka bears a scar belonging to another man. No, on close examination, I scarcely imagined that your case would hold. He stopped, fired by his own logic. The future might be Chilcot's, but the present was his, and this present, with its immeasurable possibilities, had been rescued from catastrophe. No, he said again, when you get your proof, perhaps we'll have another talk— but till then till then she looked up quickly but almost at once her question died away the door had opened and the servant who had admitted loder stood in the opening dinner is served he announced in his deferential voice End of chapter twenty two